<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Heart of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Hallie Tecco, and today my guest is Dr. Eric Topol. Eric is a practicing cardiologist and the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. He has published over 1,300 peer-reviewed articles and is one of the top 10 most cited researchers in medicine. He is an original thought leader in digital health, genomics, and AI with an enormous following on social media. Prior to Scripps, he led the Cleveland Clinic to become the number one center for heart care and was the founder of their medical school. He also has published three best-selling books on the future of medicine, The Creative Destruction of Medicine, The Patient Will See You Now, and Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. But how I really want to introduce Dr. Topol is that he was a very early supporter of our work at Rock Health. When most of the healthcare world was very skeptical of our vision for digital health, Dr. Topol believed in us, and for that, I will be forever grateful. Dr. Eric Topol, welcome to the Heart of Healthcare. Oh, Hallie, thanks so much. It's great to be with you, and I do remember the early days of Rock Health and how you were rocking it, and I was really so thrilled to see you and all the young folks, the all electricity, just lighten it up in, in digital medicine. Thank you. Yeah, I will always remember those who supported us because not everyone did. But looking back to when we first met in 2011, would you say that today we are further ahead or further behind in digital medicine than you thought we would be by 2023? Well, we're way further behind. There mm -hmm. has been some progress, of course, but yeah. it takes things like a pandemic to bring in telemedicine. And, you know, it does medicine moves so slowly and uh you know at that time so many years ago we had envisioned the more wide-scale adoption of wearable sensors and potential of remote monitoring and so many things that haven't really been actualized so there's been yeah. some progress for sure we're, we're seeing a, a small amount of what is inevitable with respect to consumer patient empowerment uh, with digital tools but that has a long ways to go to be where it can be. And hopefully the excitement right now regarding the large language models and AI uh, will help push things along to some degree. Yeah. Do you feel like it's a coordination issue? Like the innovation is there, the patients want these tools, the physicians know these tools can be helpful, but the payers are dragging their feet or is there a certain party or stakeholder that's that has made this more difficult? Yeah, well, there's lots of finger pointing uh, and blaming, but perhaps the biggest problem is there haven't been enough of the pivotal clinical trials to provide okay. compelling evidence that the, you know the change to the new state of the art care of patients. 
And so that's really on the medical research community and the funding of that and the commitment to, to have that compelling evidence. So until you have it, it's much harder to get the clinical community to change practice, to get payers and reimbursement uh, all established. So often the rate limiting step, the bottleneck is in that type of evidence base, which we just don't have enough. We have some randomized trials, some things that have a clear path towards that, but uh, so many things that just have been left uh, in a state of not adequately backed up. Yeah. So today, approximately a third of the world's data volume is being generated by the healthcare industry, but we're still using fax machines. My medical (laughs) records are still, you know, locked up in one physician's office. How do you explain this juxtaposition? Yeah, I was trying to remember what is a fax machine, right? I mean, this is incredible. I, I mean, I know have, being an old dog that things move slow and uh, it's kind of ritualistic and ossified or sclerotic medical community. But I hope we can start to get things into higher gear just because if we're going to make the improvements, particularly in the patient doctor-patient-clinician relationship, which has eroded steadily, we, we've got to adopt the technologies that will enable that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's, there's lots of issues. I mean, you know, for example, at the FDA, they've cleared over 500 AI apps, AI tools in medicine. A lot of those are in radiology and cardiology and some other disciplines. The problem is almost all of that data is unpublished, mm-hmm. all proprietary. So there's no transparency. So the health systems... And the physicians can say, well, I can't see the data. Uh, it's just 510K cleared. And, you know, I'm not doing anything until this gets published. So this is part of the difficulty of implementing things when you have lack of transparency, lack of, you know, really strong evidence. Mm-hmm. You talk a lot about open source healthcare. What do you mean by that? Well, it's just the opposite of this opaqueness. Yeah. Um, that is, um, you have all the data, code, everything that's uh, giving full transparency to the potential users, whether that's health systems, uh, physician practices, you know, whatever that is. And so they can be assured that they understand how it works, what are the nuances, what are the surveillance issues uh, after implementation. So we're missing that to a large degree. And that just gives another excuse to add on to the list of not implementing the tools that we have before us. What sort of impact do you think it could have to move to an open source model of healthcare? Oh, wow. Uh, it would accelerate <laughs> it. <laughs> okay. yeah. But you see, it's a kind of against the company interests. They want everything to be proprietary. And as long as that remains, as long as there's unwillingness to share or even publish their data, you know, <laughs> um, you can't even find a preprint for a lot of this. It's just in the bowels of the FDA that on the public or the mm-hmm. medical community will never see. So if we had that type of open science, open source, then the buy-in would be much easier to obtain. Yeah. And, and, and you know, downstream, we would get it into patient care a lot more depth and speed. Yeah. 
We've seen a lot of big tech companies come and go in healthcare. Mm. I don't know how many iterations <laughs> of like Google Health we've seen. <laughs> um, and we've also seen a lot of startups come and go, right? Some going out with pretty huge implosions. Between kind of the, the big tech companies and the small startups, where are you most bullish about innovation coming from? And who do you think is most well positioned to scale something meaningful? Yeah, well, one thing you could say is Rock Health is still standing and doing well, <laughs> uh, thanks to your founding efforts. Um, you know, I think the companies have gone through lots of different uh, phases. Google Health, as you alluded to, you know, has gone through a lot of turbulence. And now the Google Health that was at one point envisioned to combine lots of different parts of Google was radically altered. So... Microsoft at the moment, because of their big investment in OpenAI and GPT-4, is in a pretty powerful position. Uh, even though none of the large language models are truly trained medically, just what's in their vast inputs uh, of uh, their knowledge base, uh, data inputs, they can perform pretty darn well for lots of tasks uh, in the medical world for both patients and for clinicians. So mm -hmm. I think Microsoft is at the moment, uh, Google, of course, is chasing them. Uh, and then there's the other big titans like uh, Amazon and Apple and, and um, Meta and Salesforce and many others, of course, Oracle. So, yeah. um, you know, we'll see. It's, it's clear that they all, all of the big tech companies are making a, a, a major commitment. And as you touched on Hallie is that they previously have made commitments yeah. and then and then they kind of stalled out because they realized oh you got to get things through the FDA like what's that yeah. um, but now I think uh, it's getting serious because the uh, the frontier here is so vast the opportunities are so extraordinary that uh, without giving this a priority then they're missing uh, enormous opportunity yeah. Well, even you mentioned Amazon, even that huge Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, JP Morgan, Chase, that, that enormous effort they started, that venture maybe four years ago, they disbanded it after three years. Yeah, Haven went to yeah, hell. Haven. Yeah, Haven. Yeah, it didn't last. It sounded really good. I mean, yeah. it attracted a, a real superstar with a tool, Gawande, to lead it and uh, had a lot of potential. But it, again, it reflects the difficulties of change in the medical mm -hmm. sphere. Uh, and just because you have the muscle and resources of a few huge companies, that doesn't mean you can you can do it. It's a, it's a real challenge. And a lot of it is because of the US healthcare system that's fairly unique, lacking universal healthcare, as opposed to all other industrialized nations in the world that it's a right of each citizen to have healthcare. So we have lots of inherent pervasive conflicts and, uh, and, and difficulties that make our health system all the more challenging. Yeah. But it seems like these companies might not have the patients required. Yeah, that's part of it. And, yeah. uh, you know, they have to go through all kinds of fits and starts to finally realize that it's worth uh, the persistence. Uh, yeah. Because ultimately, since there isn't any dominant player of the big tech titans, and there's no shortage of startups that have, as you said, some of them have folded already, but there's many that, that, that don't make it all the more that actually come on board. 
And so it's a Darwinian process. We'll see how it plays out. But uh, I think in the next few years, we'll see the most serious priority uh, that has ever been seen with respect to all the technology companies towards their entries and their major commitments to changing healthcare as we know it today. I hope so. So on one of your Silicon Valley visits, when you came to see us at Rock Health after you visited a then darling of biomedicine, Theranos, and at Mm. the time, the media was positioning them as the most promising startup of our lifetime. Elizabeth Holmes was Time Person of the Year. But I remember you coming in to meet with us, and you're the first person to ever say, hey, I'm a little suspicious I think they're hiding something. And you really had questions about the validity of their technology. Uh, And I always think of you when I think of the Theranos story, because this was before John Carrieru came out with his findings. Tell me how we don't talk about Theranos specifically, but when you go about evaluating new innovations, which you do all the time, how do you determine and kind of get that gut sense of if this is hope versus hype versus hypocrisy? Right. Well, I do remember that meeting really well with you and the crew. And uh, it was the second time I had met with Elizabeth Holmes. The first time was when I did the very first video interview with her. I think it was um, at least 10 or 12 years ago. And uh, at that time, I, I, I had the impression that she was, you know, really, there's something strange about her. But on the other hand, mm-hmm. uh, as a young person who had recruited her her own Stanford professor, her mentor, to help her with this aspiration of, you know, creative destruction of lab medicine. I mean, it, the cognitive bias was, oh, I hope she's successful. But by yeah. the second time I met her, which was a well over a year, year and a half later, when we had spoken about doing the studies you need, head-to-head studies of Theranos technology versus existing lab technology to show that there was equivalence of results. She hadn't done anything, zero. Mm. And uh, it was starting to become clear she didn't plan on doing anything. And in in fact, when it all blew up after John Carreyrou, who had to spend 18 months on this as a bulldog to finally expose her through a couple of employee employees that that finally um, you know disclosed what was going on there behind the scenes but the problem I saw with her and I also expressed uh, in a New Yorker profile of her is her uh, unwillingness we, we talked previously here about transparency there was none there mm. and and not she 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 wouldn't even let me the first time I I had come to visit you know see the lab and that's because there was nothing there, apparently. <laughs> so yeah, I got increasingly suspicious, and uh, you know, clearly, you know, it was thanks to John Carreyrou that really undressed the whole thing and and blew it apart. But you know, in in it was a pretty unique situation because her idea was very good, and ultimately, while you won't be able to do unlimited number of lab tests through droplets of blood, you'll be able to do quite a few. I mean, ultimately, the technology to do what she had aspired to, we'll, we'll probably get there in the next couple of years. Uh, not fully, but, you know, to I hope some so. degree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the lab- It's a great idea. That, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, obviously she was a criminal and I don't know when along the way her good intentions, which I think they were there initially, 
changed to willingness to let patients be harmed to have the success of her company. That was, you know, extraordinary. Yeah. But um, I think when you evaluate uh, technologies and it's always about the people, you know, do they appear to be trustworthy and open and have high integrity, which as it turned out, of course, wasn't the case there. And is their technology really exciting? Is it something that's just, you know, kind of a, a small increment or is it something that could really uh, be considered hyper innovative? So there she had the hyper innovative yeah. side. It, it, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of the other things were very drastic shortcomings. Yeah. A lot of times things have huge potential. Team seems great and the technology might be validated, but how do you tell when something has the potential to actually scale within healthcare, to be adopted by the right people, paid for by the right people? Yeah, I mean, I think the the challenge here is, as you know well, since you evaluated you know many of these companies in this space, is identifying a, a major unmet need mm-hmm. uh, and then how well almost passively without a lot of effort, could it actually be integrated? So, I mean, how how much friction and difficulty do you foresee? Are there significant issues with reimbursement that are going to have to be confronted? What what is the level, extent of evidence needed to provide to either patients, regulatory health systems, that they will adopt it? So, there's lots of questions that have to be entertained, and it's kind of the synthesis of, of all of those to give you a sense this could really make a difference, or it just is it worth it? And a lot of times when it looks great, but then there's unanticipated bumps along the way, you know, whether it's the technology, whether it's, you know, the, re, the, the regulatory, the reimbursement, there's so many points of the obstacle course, of course, and, and you, it's very hard to predict if, if you're going to see that kind of obstacle arise or whether it will become relatively easily surmountable. Yeah, we, um, we would, in the early days of Rock Health, obviously all the companies we invested in, we had a lot of conviction, but that for some companies starts to fall apart as you see the challenges in the market. And it can be the greatest idea, but without you know market appetite and fit and policy tailwinds, for instance, it's really hard to kind of commercialize some of these great ideas. And, you know, it was one of the things that we always tried to do at Rock Health was we knew we had to bring in the healthcare people and people inside the system. We weren't trying to disrupt healthcare from the outside. It was like, you know, we are bringing new people in, but we need the stakeholders on the inside who understand how this complicated system works to help validate the ideas and bring them to life. No question. It brings to mind, Holly, about, I believe one of the companies was the one with the smartphone to do, to check for children with ear infections. Yeah. Yeah. Cellscope. Yeah. Did they finally make it? So that's a, that's a great example. Cellscope, unfortunately, did not make it. Yeah. Um, Great team came out of lab, you know, out of a lab in Berkeley. And I think ultimately, for them to distribute, and I don't have the official like postmortem on them, but for them to distribute through pediatricians was just a really, you know, it's a difficult distribution model. 
Um, I mean, it's incredible because it yeah. was it was ingenious, so simple. I, know. I mean, I even used it to uh, to examine Stephen Colbert's ear <laughs> and his ruptured his ruptured eardrum on TV. You know, but it was yeah. so simple. It worked so well, and you would have predicted. I, I would have, and I knew the CEO and the the team. They were yeah, amazing. great team. Great Just, team. you know, phenomenal group. Why, if that didn't succeed, that shows you how, how hard it is because, I know. you know, and why do you have to go through the medical side? Why don't you just go right to parents who yeah. don't want to have to deal with the difficulties of urgent care and emergency rooms and well, maybe today, to do it. Yeah. yeah. Maybe today they could, right? Like today, telemedicine adoption is, is far higher on both sides, on the clinician mm. side and on the patient side. So maybe if someone were to kind of resurface the technology today, the telehealth side of it is is actually played out, right? We're seeing um, a much greater adoption. So maybe it was just a timing thing. They were too maybe. early. I, yeah. I, I hope so. I, yeah. I really think it was a, a first-rate uh, technology, simple yeah. And inexpensive, it could have made a big difference. Maybe it will resurface. Yeah. yeah, I hope so. I hope so. We've made great strides in technology, but the fact is we're adding costs and we're not living longer. Like when you actually look at healthcare spending and that is increasing, and then you look at our life expectancy and that is flat, if not going down, how do, what do we do? How do, how do we yeah, keep doing yeah. this and hope for change when nothing is actually changing? We're just making well, healthcare more expensive. Yeah, the problem is you're referring to this country, uh, the United States, where it's unique. It's the only country of the 36 uh, OECD industrialized nations that have had such a substantial, almost three-year reduction in our life expectancy, and at the same time, expends the most per person yeah. for healthcare, well, well beyond any other country. So we are in a very bad predicament here, for, and we're going from kind of bad to worse in terms of the gradient of our uh, expenditures and outcomes compared to all peer countries. So uh, the the simple thing, of course, is, as we discussed, that you know every citizen should have um, healthcare uh, a right as a citizen. And yeah. That is a, 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 a whether when and whether that'll ever change here is is a, a real concern. But then if you say, well, okay, you have resources, and how come you don't see improvement in quality of life or life expectancy? You know, why is all this uh, spending for healthcare not associated with uh, yeah. improved outcomes? And you know, one of the interesting things there is because our system is designed to do things you know, do more procedures, do more tests. We have a rabbit hole problem where the wealthy, the affluenza, uh, can go and get work up on anything and just get more tests and they'll find things, incidental things. And then all of a sudden there's a complication of one of these procedures. So we have this paradox of people that are the worried well that are overcooked with medical yeah. stuff because that's our system. It, it basically is propelled by doing more rather than doing what's needed. And we have no really good prevention strategies, which I think that's going to change, you know, with the ability to, uh, with these large language models and integrate all of a person's data over time, we'll, we'll see that improve. But right now, prevention, primary prevention of illnesses, which is the big step towards improving health span, we, we just don't even show up yet. Yeah. 
it's disappointing because we want to think that our work is the work that we're doing is um, we know and and a micro level, we hear from the customers, we hear from the people who are benefiting from these new technologies. But when you look at it at a population level, we're just not seeing a difference. That's hard. No, it, it, it's, it, yeah. And I'm sure everybody listening has experiences who, yeah. when, when they, they had some kind of query, a medical question, and they, the amount of testing that they went through to get an answer seemed to be far more extensive than was necessary. Uh, and you don't see that in many other parts of the world. We'll be right back after the break. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So your most recent book, Deep Medicine, explores the potential of AI to transform healthcare. What do you see as the most promising applications of AI with healthcare? And do you have any concerns about the adoption? Well, yeah, you always want to have concerns because there's no thing that is kind of foolproof that doesn't carry the potential for harm. But uh, I've never been more excited uh, for our healthcare future. And that's because... There's different phases of where AI, and particularly, you know, this large language model, generative AI, that's kicked in in recent months, to take hold. Uh, The first, of course, is improving accuracy, which is a big deal, whether that's from a scan or uh, making a diagnosis. We have a a very serious problem with uh, major medical errors in this country, over 20 million a year. Uh, And... We can fix a lot of those by using AI as a support, as an assist tool, by 
better interpretation of scans, not missing things, not giving false positives, uh, but also the data, you know, not missing things that's in a patient's uh, electronic records, which are oftentimes are multiple records and not keeping up with the latest in the medical literature, the corpus of medical knowledge. So that should improve. On a longer term, beyond the fact that we're going to see the automation uh, hopefully rescue the so-called, what I call keyboard liberation and all that movement. We can talk about that. But the yeah. longer term view, the, the, the thesis of the book of deep medicine is this counterintuitive notion that we can use technology to improve the humanity, to restore the humanity in medicine. Uh, but that is the gift of time that it can provide us would then give us the, the, what we need to restore that patient-doctor relationship. And that means having a presence, a trust, a empathy, the communication, you know, that the patient knows you have their back. We don't have that largely today. It, we had it in the 1970s and 80s when I was just coming into medicine, but it, it's basically eroded. And so I do think AI will get us that back if we are if we go after it, it won't happen by accident. But if we yeah. make that a priority over time, the gift of time could get us to a very uh, important uh, restoration of what is the essence of medicine, which is the human component, the interhuman bond. Yeah. And are you finding that providers are warm to AI or skeptical or both? I think both. I think that what they really see the benefit, as you can imagine, Allie, it could have saved them money. <laughs> okay, so yeah. the idea here is, oh, you mean we could get rid of keyboards in the office and the doctors and the nurses, they wouldn't have to type stuff and the synthetic notes would, would then lead to prescriptions and follow-up appointments and the lab uh, orders and and pre-authorization notes and you know everything would be done. It, wouldn't that be great? And then we can have the, the doctors see more patients and they could read more scans and more slides. So uh, the idea that you know the, the coding could be more efficient with AI, these are the kinds of things that health systems yeah. say, oh yeah, I could make more. But the reality is if we understand the power here, which is substantial, uh, particularly with the large language models when they're pre-trained specifically for these important purposes, then we have a kind of a reset. Uh, and it's the problem, Holly, is as you know well, most health systems uh, are run, you know, by um, uh, administrative managers, the overlords of American medicine, right? And they have different interests than the patients and the clinicians. And so we, we have to come to a better place where this relationship becomes center stage. And I envision someday, Holly, that we'll see health systems, instead of now when they would advertise that they have robots to do the surgery or, you know, whatever they're advertising, they might advertise and have billboards about, we give the gift of time to our uh, patients and our our doctors and nurses, because that's what's missing now. And that rush, that lack of time, yeah. um, which is what leads to so many mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like uh, providers are always running late and you get less time than you want. So, mm -hmm. um, and you know, the biggest they, complaint I hear from the, on the physician side is really like, I'm spending way too much time in the EMR. Yes, exactly. And then a lot of that's off hours and weekends 
And uh, no less, you know, throughout the day, they can't even look uh, eye to eye with a patient because of that. So this is what has been a serious compromise of the profession. And um, it's not just felt by doctors and nurses with profound disenchantment and depression and burnout uh, and even suicides because of the inability to care for patients, which is why we went into medicine, of course. So uh, this has to be remedied quickly and I do think in the next couple of years, this will be one of those very short-term radical uptakes. It's already being piloted in many health systems throughout the country with different tools that that get us started in this automated way. And I hope that that is something that we'll see uh, an accelerated uptake because we need it. Yeah. Can you tell us or explain to us what algorithmic fairness is? Mm. Well, there's lots of different ways that algorithms can be biased and unfair, uh, discriminative. Some of it is a good part about the inputs. So mm. because, for example, let's say you had a uh, uh, algorithm that would interpret a skin lesion, like a photo on a smartphone, mm-hmm. and you want to say, is it cancer? Or is it a rash? You know, what is it? Well, if you only train the algorithm... Uh, with people uh, who are European ancestry and no people of color, it's going to be a lemon. It's going to fail. And so that's one issue of lacking fairness and a profound bias. But then you have uh, another example is uh, Optum, where they had tens of millions of people uh, in their Optum data resource, where they made this um, conclusion that people of uh, African ancestry had a different resource use than those of Europe, of European ancestry. It was completely flawed because of wrong assumptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, one of the things yeah. that we've learned about algorithms, most of the problem is not the AI per se. It's the lack of, d- of deep interrogation of the inputs things that are embedded in our culture or a lack of uh, foresight in the people who are writing the codes, who are doing the training, who are doing the testing and validation of the algorithm. Most of the time, once you get past that and you, you vet it and, and you look carefully at the input of data, is it as diverse as it needs to be? Then you, 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 it, the algorithm will probably not be the, the problem. But unfortunately, AI gets blamed largely when it's really people. Uh, it's really the it, it's the culture and the people that are developing algorithms that need to take on the responsibility. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can have AI that can be uh, self-critical and understand if it contains bias due to the inputs. Well, you're bringing up one of the things about AI that's funny, Allie. Every time there's a problem identified with AI, the AI scientists say, we'll use AI to fix it. Uh, but Unfortunately, it, that might work to kind of deconstruct uh, a, a deep neural network to understand what are the features that make it accurate. But it's much harder, as we've learned, to use AI to, to find misinformation or to detect bias and lack of fairness. Hopefully, it will help. But we hear human judgment and you know deep interrogation is going to be necessary until we have uh, assurance that AI can help 
eradicate this problem. It is a significant problem, and we've seen it with so many things. I mean, you remember the the problems with oximetry through uh, wristbands and how pulse oximetry, if the person of color, you know, it didn't work very well. Uh, And this, uh, and, and released at scale without having that data. So we have to do better. I hope we will. I hope we'll have learned from the genomics community because they're a decade or more to figure out, you know what, if you don't study people of all ancestry and ethnicity and have data that's rich, you're you're not going to do well. Yeah. Do you think that we're going to see AI helping improve access and equity for underserved populations? Or is it going to be kind of like everything else has gone, which is it helps the wealthy first and then hopefully trickles down? Yeah, well, this is something that I'm excited about, too, because I've seen some great examples of how AI tools have been adopted much more quickly in low and middle income countries than here. So um, my favorite example, there are many, uh, is the smartphone ultrasound. Because what you're seeing in Africa, in the hinterlands of Africa, India, and other countries, is that people with no training to acquire an ultrasound can have the AI direct them, even to get an echocardiogram, which is complicated because it's videos and it's the heart, it's in motion. But other parts, any part of the body except for the brain, you can get an ultrasound image through the smartphone with a probe that just you know attaches to the base of the smartphone. So the AI will say, you know, as long as you put it like on the abdomen, it'll direct you, you know, how could, how do you get an image of the kidney or, you know, the gallbladder or the liver or whatever. And um, then it also can provide auto interpretation. Very cool. And it's been used uh, in Africa for a diagnosis of pneumonia by, when it's used for the lungs. And what's really extraordinary is you have the AI not only helping to guide to acquire the image, and you don't even know as the person that you got the image because it's auto-captured as soon as the AI detects its high quality. And then you get interpretation of the image with the algorithm. So this is a a great tool uh, for places that don't have this technology widely available Uh, no less the expertise in interpretation. Now, of course, you always want to have humans in the loop when you're going to have a management uh, issue of how do you treat the patient. Uh, But this helps to get the initial screening, kind of get a handle on what's going on with patients. I think it's it's going to play out to be important. And it's just one of of several examples like that. What's the, what's the name of the company or the product? Well, there's several. Uh, okay. The one that I've seen used, uh, at least the one that was uh, in, a, in a big New York Times feature, uh, was the, uh, I'm trying to remember which ultrasound smartphone, but it was with a caption, which I think is now part of GE. Okay. So they used one of the startup guidance for yeah. getting the uh, acquisition of the images. Yeah, very cool. So you write, you treat, you teach, and you convene. I'm not sure what else you do, but um, (laughs) have you ever thought of starting a company? Well, I have been involved uh, with uh, on a few startups. Uh, Usually, they they failed. Um, But uh, you know, I I guess uh, I'm I'm trying to remember if any have been successful. Um, Not really. (laughs) Well. You know, one that's still in suspension, you know, I work with my friend Steve Quake at uh, Stanford, who's done a lot of startups. He's a really hyper innovative guy on a company we call Molecular Stethoscope to take 
uh, RNA circulating in the blood, a tube of blood, and be able to uh, do like a, a test of multiple organs to see if there's any malfunction. That that company's still alive. Hopefully, eventually, it will find its place. But outside of that, you know, I think I don't ever really. I don't know if I want to do that anymore because I'm not. I don't have a good track record. Uh, I've done a few, and they haven't really. They survived. They didn't completely. Uh, go go bankrupt, but they didn't really do what they were intended to do, which is disappointing. But mm-hmm. what's more fun is to see technologies like we discussed uh, and yeah. help be as an advisor or at least even uh, informally to bounce ideas off to yeah. help catalyze uh, a success. Maybe VC is another hat you could wear. Yeah, I don't know about that one. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I interact some with VCs you know, they're, oftentimes they're about a lot of sharp people. But the problem I have is they tend to really crowd out the inventors, the founders. Mm, and I yeah. don't like to see that. You know, they, yeah. they, 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 they are often people that don't have resources. And before you know it, they don't even have much of the company and their idea. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. The vulture capital, I mean, <laughs> some of them are really good, I guess. But I, I often think that uh, it'd be great if some of these founders with great ideas could could try to avoid much in the way of VC. Now, that obviously in many areas they're absolutely vital, but in some of the medical startups, it, it's good if, uh, it's, it's, as far as I can see, if to get some real good momentum before you have to resort to getting a lot of funding through uh, venture capital. Oh, absolutely! You don't then you don't have to give up as much of your company. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Amazing. Well, for kind of to close things out today, what advice would you give to our audience of aspiring healthcare innovators and leaders? Well, I wish I could trade places with them because they had to be younger (laughs) than me, right? And uh, it's so exciting to see what's going on right now because um, Mm -hmm. there's so much room for uh, the innovative spirit and to actualize these opportunities that seem to be limitless. Uh, and, you know, everything from the, the early short-term benefits that we had to gutting hospitals as we know them today, to have patients be able to be treated in, in their homes, to virtual health coaches, to digital twin infrastructures, where we, we a true learning system of the planet, of our species. There's, it's just, hell, it's so exciting. And I think uh, what a space to be in so your your crew, uh, they got a lot to look forward to, and uh, I'm sure yeah. they'll uh, they'll have a lot of successes along the way. Well, thank you. I say my favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. It's what keeps me in this otherwise very challenging and slow industry. And Eric, you have always been one of my favorites. I appreciate everything that you do for this industry and how much support you've given me in my career. So thank you, oh, and thank you for being here. It's a mutual, Allie. Keep up the great stuff, and I'll be uh, hoping to have more conversations with you in the times ahead. Yeah, I need to come visit you in San Diego. That'd be great. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our host is Hallie Tecco. 
For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.